Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. Okay, gather round, everybody. This is our first chance to meet as a company before we start rehearsing this very special production of Hamlet. I want to begin by going over the cars. Mm, cars? Well, for most of the play, Hamlet drives a Jaguar F-Type with 550 BHP coming from the 5.0-liter supercharged V8 engine, and it basically symbolizes his indecisiveness and his, his impulsiveness. But when he runs over Polonius, he'll be driving a custom Subaru BRZ with the slam ducktail body kit, wide wheels. Mm, excuse and it, me? Uh, Hamlet runs over Polonius? Yeah, because he doesn't know that Polonius's son is an undercover FBI agent. That sets the stage for Laertes to show up in this orange Lamborghini with a 6.2 liter V12 motor. And like, what does Ophelia drive? A 1966 Corvette Stingray with massive custom wheels and finished in chrome and a really beautiful dual tone white and red paint job. And you get to drive it right into the river and drown. Sweet! Hey, I play Claudius, but in my script, the only line I seem to have is Groot. Over and over. Yep, you get to say it different ways, depending on the situation. And at the end, after Hamlet's poured transmission fluid down your throat, and you appear to be dead, when Hamlet, who's also almost dead, says, the rest is silence, you push yourself up on one elbow and say, Groot, one last time. And of course, by that point, Fortinbras has come blasting through in his Mercedes AMG GT with 577 BHP. Hold on, I have to introduce this show on brilliant brainless movies and now the star of dark knight of the caribbean hunger games transformer versus superman colin mcenroe i'm not sure exactly what role i play in that however all right so we ha i have to begin by explaining what this show is about and, and i will confess to you that we got deep into planning this show without really crystallizing exactly what it's about but here's here's how i would put it there are a lot of very very popular movies that kind of get grouped in the general category of trashy movies. Um, but within that ocean of trashy movies are, are some subsets. And, and not only that, but obviously one person's trash is another person's treasure. If you were to give my son and me the choice between watching the original Point Break, the Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves Point Break, and almost any Eugene O'Neill play, we would pick the Point Break and we would feel we were making a solid artistic choice there. But I, I'm, I'm not sure the critical establishment would necessarily feel the same way. So we all have these favorites, you know, these things that we think we can even make an artistic and critical case for. And then there are other things that are just really are just trash and are irredeemable and have no aesthetics and no subtext. Um, and then there are other movies which maybe don't aim all that high, but they hit their target so perfectly. I would put, for example, the movie Speed uh, in that category. Not a lot of subtext there, not a lot of ideas in that movie, but it is perfectly what it sets out to be. So we just felt like nobody ever really discusses this. Well, not nobody, but people don't. People on public radio don't discuss <laughs> these kinds of movies. And so then we thought, well, who discusses radio, uh, pu public movie? Well, I guess, who discusses movies on public radio? Bob Mondello. So we asked Bob Mondello, who is NPR's senior arts critic, to join us for this conversation. Also, Stephanie Mary, who turns out to have the very interesting job 
uh, well, first of all, she's pop culture reporter at the Washington Post, which is an interesting job in and of itself. But she's also their designated Fast and Furious critic. Uh, and indeed, the Fast and Furious uh, franchise is really what got us thinking uh, about this whole area of sort of, you know, movies that uh, don't have the kind of critical portfolio that maybe other movies do. So uh, welcome to both of you. I'm very excited to have both of you here. Bob Mondello, I'm going to start with you. I oh, guess, my God. Well, <laughs> I guess well, let's maybe just define a few overarching principles or, or, or talk them out anyway. I mean, I think one thing that we, you, we could easily argue is that more people watch more kind of dumb movies these days than in the past. If you look at the top 10 box office movies of all time adjusted for inflation, then it's Sound of Music and Gone with the Wind. And you know, There's a lot of movies like that that are sort of involve actual human beings and uh, don't have anybody who's a superhero, don't have any science fiction component, don't have anything and like no that. And no right. car crashes. And no car crashes. But if you just I, look at box office in terms of t- today's numbers... It's it is all superheroes, car crashes. I mean, pretty much. Except Titanic is probably the only movie that's in there anywhere that just involves regular old human beings. Well, I think you know, even even when they don't involve human beings, uh, or <laughs> let me take that back, when when they involve human beings and other folks, uh, let's say Avatar, for instance, mm-hmm. um, the the picture can uh, the picture is enormous. It's a huge hit. Audiences are fascinated by it, and I think they're fascinated by the eternal verities of of uh, drama. I mean, you know, I I, I wouldn't want to go back to the ancient Greeks on that. But I, I think as a general thing, uh, audiences like movies that are about family, that are about uh, identifiable characters who have emotions and who respond in ways that are sort of recognizable. Now, that said, um, the Fast and Furious uh, series talks all the time about family mm. and is not, I, I think, profound about it. But, it, you know, it, it's a... Uh, it's a serviceable franchise, and it certainly uh, certainly made a lot of money, a lot more than, say, uh, the last time that somebody adapted Eugene O'Neill. Right. Um, and are there franchises, Bob, like let's say the Transformer franchise, where you, as Bob Mondello, don't really feel as though you need to see all the rest of them? <laughs> well, I certainly don't expect to see the rest of those. I, there, there, you know that that would that franchise would have to do something very different before it was uh, it, it was worth our revisiting um, in a critical way on mm. NPR. But I, you know, I I've been back to a lot of movies that uh, that strike a lot of people as silly. Um, to see the second and third and fourth versions of them, and and sometimes the twenty fifth, if you talk about the the James Bond movies, for instance, and you know at some point in the middle of of that series, that that series got really mindless, um, and then it sort of came back uh, in the in the last few when Daniel Craig got involved. So I think uh, as a as a practical matter, there are kinds of pictures that, yeah, I decide there's nothing really to say about this movie except it blows things up in a, in a persuasive way, you know, and, and that's not really, I mean, you know, these days with special effects, I think we're, we're there. Every, everything, the, the, you know, the, I don't know, the mutant turtles can blow things up in an, in an effectively persuasive way, at which point I'm not sure that that means anything anymore. Um, uh, one more sort of ground rule or something, and then I want to bring Stephanie into this conversation too, but it seems to me that maybe right around 2008, there might have been a watershed mo- moment attached to the movie The Dark Knight, where 
we're, how can I put this? Certain movies lost their presumption of lowbrow or even low middlebrow status. I think maybe prior to that, there was probably some portion of the critical establishment and aesthetes in general who would say, well, if they're wearing capes and cowls and, you know, superhero costumes and stuff like that, that automatically kind of ghettoizes it in a certain way. And, you know, the Academy famously expanded its best picture category, I think partly as a reaction to this, well, you know, there's some of these movies, we're going to have to start taking them seriously in a way that we never did before. And the only way to do that is to expand the category to <laughs> 10 pictures instead of five. Well, I yes, and I, I think most of the critical ex- establishment always took superhero movies seriously insofar as they were, in, insofar as we were talking filmmaking. Um, not necessarily seriously in terms of the writing, because an awful lot of them are written very badly. Um, but that's, you know, that's a, this is a problem of, of uh, romantic comedies, too. I mean, it, it applies to everything. I think superhero movies and uh, fantasy films are arguably much bigger these days than they used to be, partly because filmmaking has progressed to the point that fantasy is something that they can, that, that Hollywood can do very persuasively. Um, notice I keep on coming back, back to that one word, persuasive, yeah. that a picture, a, a movie needs to be persuasive in some way for an audience to like it. And I, I think in a lot, I, I, I haven't really given this any thought. I'm talking off the top of my head here. It seems to me that Hollywood can now make really stupid stuff persuasive. <laughs> All right. What a perfect segue to Fast and Furious movies. Although I, I don't I don't necessarily mean to paint them exactly with that brush. And Stephanie, um, first of all, I should say that prior to preparing for the show, I had never seen, I like I go to a lot of movies. I see a lot of movies. I'd never seen a Fast and Furious movie. I didn't know what they really were. I knew there were cars in them. And so now I have seen Fast and Furious movies. And, and now I've... Wait, and which ones did you decide to see? Because oh. there are some you can definitely skip. Right. Well, my, my point of entry was um, was the F- Furious 7. Um, and, and, like, I sort of get it, but I want you to help uh, our audience get it because you're the person in the Washington Post newsroom and in other venues who's, who stands up for these movies. So stand up for them now. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I realized this a couple of years ago before the Furious 7 uh, came out when I was talking to other reporters and I realized that I wasn't just like the only apologist in, in the room, but also definitely the only celebrant. Um, so that's how I ended up with the uh, Fast and Furious beat every two years. Um, I, I think that it's a really fascinating franchise both in the way that it reinvented itself, because it started out as this movie that was really for for gearheads, for people who were into street racing. And then, you know, during the, the fifth installment, Fast Five, they completely revamped it, and it worked so well. They turned it into this heist movie um, where you're globetrotting, so it kind of has that, that James Bond feel to it, um, but it still had that that sort of core of family that Bob talked about. It's, you know, they hit you over the head with it. They say family probably 37 times in in each movie. Um, But it does have this kind of sweet core. Um, And if you've seen the seventh movie, then you know that it can actually be kind of a a, a tearjerker. Um, Obviously, that was because Paul Walker passed away in the middle of of filming that movie. But, um, But there is definitely like an emotional core to these movies. Um, but then just one other thing. I know I'm just talking and talking, and I could keep talking about this for a long time. But, um, but the, the action sequences, I think, are, are really what stand out. Because in the beginning, it was all about cars that could go fast. And then with the fifth movie, it sort of seemed like they were saying, okay, we're going to have our own Fast and Furious 
sense of gravity and we can do whatever we want. Um, and since then, there have been some really spectacularly choreographed uh, set pieces with cars flying out of one skyscraper and landing in another or parachuting out of airplanes um, or what have you. And in the most recent one, you could sort of see the gears turning, like they'd already done the air and they'd done the land, so they needed to do water. So there was this huge set piece with a submarine with all these cars driving on ice. So I, I would just love to be in the room when they're discussing what new insane set piece to come up with. You know, I, I've been trying to think a little bit about the subtext of these movies and like what they're all about, particularly all this kind of pietistic uh, going on and on about family. This is the only family I need. You're the only family I'll ever have. Uh, also, a lot of addressing one another as you're my brother when you're not actually, uh, in a familial sense, familial sense, really my brother. And I wondered if part of it is that this in turn, I know it has a huge worldwide audience, and we can talk about that. You know, the the foreign market for this is, is huge. But in America, I wonder if a big passionate part of its audience is a cohort, a generational cohort, let's put them between the ages of 18 and 30, who've never served in the military um, because we have a volunteer army. It's a small subset of young American men serve in the military. This seems so much like a kind of band of brothers thing, you know, that, that these are people brought together who have a stronger-than-blood tie because of everything that they've ever been through. And this is something that generations of young men in America experienced for, you know, for most of American history, except not now. I don't know. I, I, does that seem like a totally specious argument, Stephanie? I mean, you know, some people would say, don't read too much into these movies. But I, I think that there's something there. It's it's this really interesting crew, um, this multicultural, multi-ethnic crew of people from very different backgrounds who have come together and um, and like nothing is stronger than this bond. There's also this this recurring theme of of forgiveness because the very first movie, um, sort of the two main players, Brian, Paul, played by Paul Walker, and and Dom Toretto, which is Vin Diesel, um, they're on opposite sides of the law. Uh, Brian's an undercover agent, and um, and Dom is a is a criminal, and and they end up becoming brothers. And in the most recent movie, um, a former villain ends up part of the crew. And and I kind of love that they keep expanding their crew right. to to include all of these former enemies. And I'm like, you know, in this moment where where we can't really talk to each other um, on opposite sides of the aisle, especially in D.C., it's kind of nice to see enemies uh, mending fences. All right, let's actually hear a little bit um, for those of you who have never absorbed any. Uh, of the dialogue in uh, Fast and Furious. I think this is from the original Fast and Furious movie, is it not? Yes, all right. So this is the original uh, Fast and Furious. You'll, you'll hear a little bit of that conversation, I think, between those two characters. Okay, good luck, guys. Hey, wait, hold up. I don't have any cash, but I do have the pink slip to my car. Hey, you just can't climb in the ring with Ali because you think you box? He knows I can box. So check it out, it's like this. I lose, winner takes my car clean and clear. But if I win, I take the cash and I take the respect. <laughs> to some people, that's more important. That your car? Oh, I got it. Oh. See a cool air intake. It's got a mass fogger system and a T4 turbo Dominic. See an AIC controller. It has direct port nitrous injection. Yeah, and a standalone fuel management system. Not a bad way to spend ten thousand dollars. He's got enough nice to blow himself up. Period. Yeah. So what are you saying? Am I worthy? 
We don't know yet. But you're in. Let's go. You know, Bob Mandela, one thing it strikes me that that helps some of these movies is just having really good actors in them. So if you tried to make Point Break without uh, Patrick Swayze and without Gary Busey for comic relief and stuff like that, maybe you don't have. Well, actually, they did that and they didn't have such a good movie. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I mean, you've tried to make Speed without Keanu and Sandra Bullock and J- uh, Jeff Daniels. I, I think you, once again, maybe you have a lesser movie. One thing that does seem to help these movies a little bit. I mean, Vin Diesel is getting measurably worse as an actor with each passing year. It's like they hit him in the head with a plank till eventually he, he will only be able to say Groot. But like some of these other people, <laughs> you know, Paul Walker, I was kind of surprised. Uh, Bob, I could imagine, you know, Jack Warner discovering a guy like that in the studio system and making him one of the biggest stars of the studio era. He's very handsome. He's got stuff going on behind his eyes. I mean, some of these actors are pretty good. I, I absolutely agree. I, the for what they're being asked to do, they are terrific. In fact, and and you know they're they're sort of action movie stars. I, it's it's a. I, Stephanie was just talking about it, it being a, a, a broadly accessible group. I mean, there's a reason that this picture did twice as much business in China as it did in the United States in its opening weekend, right? I mean, it is it is exactly the multicultural aspect of it that makes it very appealing worldwide and is why these things are taking off. And, you know, the actors are all, I mean, you know, in in, in many parts of the world, these actors are going to be the, the uh, prime exemplars of, of what Hollywood's all about. We're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to have more of Bob and Stephanie on the other side of that break, so let's do it. It's rare that I'm sitting here looking at our notes with the thing and I'm laughing, but I'm actually laughing looking at the notes. All right. So um, we're talking about uh, movies that maybe don't have a huge critical cachet, uh, but in one way or another, keep us spellbound. And we love for different reasons. Um, Bob Mondello is NPR's senior arts critic. Stephanie Mary is a pop culture reporter at The Washington Post. And so um, I'm going to ask both of you a little bit about this. But so, Bob, I think it's time it's time for you to come clean. Um, mm-hmm. What are some movies that you like that you're kind of ashamed of liking? In other words, movies <laughs> that you, if you saw it in the movie, that you'd probably have to put like a Groucho Marx nose and glasses on so nobody really knew that Bob Mondello was going to see this movie. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't get ashamed of them because I'm a critic and I get to say that they're okay, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I can give them some critical credibility. I the, the one that I really loved and had a lot of trouble talking people into going to originally was Tremors. Mm. I, I just love it. I, I love the movie. It's it's about giant worms trying to eat Kevin Bacon, and uh, it seems like a perfectly reasonable you know <laughs> storyline to me. Um, it's it's it mocks a certain kind of movie, and I got a big. I mean the the kind of movie being the incredibly low budget uh, horror flick that was made in someone's backyard with you know. Uh, very very few special effects but uh somebody dressed up in an outfit right Right. of of some sort and um this particular one was done with a somewhat bigger budget and i think they intended it to be a bigger picture and it never really clicked with people but i i I would guess i I haven't looked it up but i would guess it actually did okay with the critical fraternity it just didn't click particularly this uh just have a little bit of the excitement of tremors right here for you Wait, wait, wait. This was not fallen for it. 
trick us. Use your bomb. It's our last one. What else are you gonna use it for? So what if we make it to the rocks? We'll be dead in three days anyway. Well, I wanna live for the three days. Actually, it's well known that Sir Tom Stoppard did the third rewrite on that script. But, um, but so Stephanie, I have Bob's list. Uh, I have half Bob's list of movies that that he thinks are sort of clever, but maybe play a little bit dumb. And it includes Galaxy Quest, which I think is a brilliant movie. Mad Max Fury Road, Tremors, The Big Bus, Con Air. Stephanie, I would say Con Air on that list is the only one that that really is kind of a dumb movie. I don't know. What's your reaction? Uh, I agree. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road, I thought that was pretty brilliant. But Con Air, wow, that is, that's a special one. Um, Nicolas Cage <laughs> just at his most hor- horrific acting. But, but man, if it wasn't entertaining. I think I saw that one in the theater. And I was actually going back and looking through some of the, the action movies I loved as I was growing up. And, um, and, and the 90s just had a, a plethora of these kinds of movies. You know, you've got Speed and Con Air and Face Off and The Rock. There were a lot of these sort of terrible but extremely entertaining action movies. It's time for us all to See, say, that's what's so, put that's the what's bunny so weird back about in the box. Put the bunny back <laughs> in the box. Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> no, I mean, this is this is what's... Uh, I, speed. I Yes, I agree. It's silly. On, on some level, but it's a really well-made movie. And I think, I, I, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that the uh, the critical fraternity jumped up and down over it originally, right? So mm-hmm. so it, the, my problem with the, the notion of, um, you know, sort of dumb but good mm-hmm. is that usually they're, they're, you know, they're dumb like a fox, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're very adept at, at, uh, at tapping into something that the public likes. Now, Snakes on a Plane... Is is a is the kind of picture that, okay, it was terrible, and all it had was an a, a title, really. I mean that that was that was it. And what were you going to do with that once you once you put the snakes on the plane? There was nowhere to go with that movie, and and so, you know, there are some like that that are that try to sell themselves in, exclusively on the notion of, of what they're put together with. I I used to for some reason in my Wikipedia entry somebody put one time that that I had a theory that the the fewer words it took to express what a film was, uh, the dumber it probably was. And the example they gave was DeVito and Schwarzenegger are twins, <laughs> right? And yes, that's, <laughs> I mean, that was a dumb picture. But but as a practical matter, there is something to be said for the the kind of movie that can be summed up in its title. And, and, that, and Hamlet, which you guys did a, a parody of at the beginning, is not that kind of movie, right? I right. mean, Hamlet is more complex, and its title doesn't tell you what uh, tells you tell you everything you need to know about it. So um, we're going to run out of time here. There's so many things I want to talk, talk about, but I, <laughs> Stephanie, let's talk about Independence Day. All right. So I happen to really like Independence Day a lot. I I, I know of no possible intellectual defense for it other than once you've seen Independence Day resurgence, you understand what an incredible masterpiece Independence Day was in the first place. <laughs> but but I don't know. Is there is there a way to make an argument for Independence Day other than just we like it? I yeah, I mean I actually think that it was it was smartly put together and and it has good dialogue and it has good character development. You care about these characters. Um, you've got sort of the the comic relief, which breaks up the tension of the alien invasion. Um, you know, you've got like the the 
uh, Jeff Goldblum, you know, and the Wisecracking and Will Smith. I mean, you've got just some some really great characters. Um, but then I think that at the time, especially the special effects were were pretty impressive. Um, I, I remember seeing that in the theater as well yeah. on July 4th, actually. Um, and and it was one of the first times, I think, that I had ever seen such mass destruction on the big screen. I think that was kind of a, I mean, that was the first time I could remember it. Uh, and it hit me really hard. Uh, now we see it all the time, especially with all these, you know, Marvel and DC Comics movies. It's always about, you know, mass world destruction. Um, oh, in 2012, time, wiped out the the world. That's right. Yeah, right? I mean, okay, that was really a bad movie. That, <laughs> yes, it no, was. And it was the, no and it was the same it. producer, right? It was the same producer mm-hmm. as, as uh, Independence Day. So, Bob, we're almost out of time, but I, there's another movie I want to talk about, mainly because I happen to know that you don't like it. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, if we could, if, if lowbrow pictures are essentially plot-driven and middlebrow pictures are more character-driven, that Armageddon is kind of the latter, that it's actually kind of a character-driven movie. Uh, but I happen to know, as I say, that you don't like it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i'm sorry i can't i it's not ghastly of the two uh that came out that week was it yeah the uh, tea leone one is and, not as good um yeah i you know eh, they're they're fine i mean on on uh, on some level that's another one that as soon as you say what it's about an asteroid or was it a comet uh crashing into the earth it it tells itself um i i didn't think that uh Ben Affleck, uh, you know, particularly covered himself in shame, but he wasn't uh, great either. And, uh, you know, it's 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 one of those it's one of those movies. But Stephanie, isn't it also it's like a Fast and Furious movie. It's about this sort of group of people who are who are a unique semi-militaristic subculture, uh, but they're like get along so great. It is. It has that character driven um Sensibility that I think is, is isn't in say like a Transformers movie. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's true. <laughs> right. Well, we're gonna have to stop there. I could talk. Uh, I want. There's so many movies that I want to talk about more, but we we have to stop uh, because among other things, we have a pledge break. If you love Bob Mondello and you enjoy hearing Bob Mondello on this radio station, guess what you have to do now? You have to support this radio station. Nice people are going to ask you to do that. Uh, we're so grateful for Bob uh, being with us today and Stephanie Mary. Uh, who is the world's greatest expert on the aesthetics of Fast and Furious movies. But now, you know, if you like conversations like the one we're having, if you're having fun along with us, which is sort of our goal, maybe you would make a little pledge right now. More entertaining. They should do a remake of The Rock starring The Rock. Has that already been discussed? Today's show is produced by Jonathan McTance and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish appears in the new Transformer movie, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Ludacris. On tomorrow's show, the nose looks at the controversy over 13 reasons why. And now, back to Colin. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until further... Oh, I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on a bulletin board. Wax Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call. How does he know so much about this? This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crasher. You are most troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass.
check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... Well, I don't need to tell you what that is. I don't know. Nothing needs to be explained here. That, of course, is Alan Rickman uh, with Bruce Willis. Alan Rickman's first movie role ever. Uh, we're going to devote our final segment here to a discussion of Die Hard. Bob Mondello, you just heard him laugh. He's still with us. Uh, and joining us uh, is, I, boy, I've been waiting this, for this conversation for quite some time, Stephen Metcalf, who's a Slate's critic at large and the host of Slate's Culture Gabfest. By the way, I really recommend the current episode, which is based in Washington, D.C. It's in front of a live audience. And many, many funny and interesting things happen. They discuss the Fast and the Furious movies. And you get to hear John Dickerson sing a Dylan song and then listen to Stephen Metcalf refer to his inscrutable blandness. Uh, so there's there's lots. There's so much going on here. But I've known for a long time that Stephen Metcalf, uh, egghead that he is, is uh, a, a huge devotee uh, of Die Hard. And he's simply not the kind of person who could mindlessly enjoy something like that. So uh, Bob and I want to know more about this. Uh, we want to know. <laughs> Uh, what he's mining diehard for. So, Stephen Metcalf, welcome back to our show. Colin, thank you so much. That was uh, me laughing as well in the background. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know. Where, I mean, I, I guess I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, when you are confronted uh, by the intelligentsia with whom you travel uh, about diehard, I'm sure there are a lot of people prepared to dismiss it more or less out of hand. Do you have some kind of pat rejoinder to that? Oh, my gosh. Well, um, I don't know. if. Uh, well, first of all, it's just a superbly constructed uh, 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 movie. It's a beautifully crafted screenplay. Um, uh, I, the, the, really, the, the two-word answer is Alan Rickman, um, and we'll, I, we should get there in a second. I mean, Rickman invented a whole new uh, kind of archetype for screen villainy, in my estimation. But I guess, I guess the sort of potted theory that I would come up with to please both my lowbrow friends, uh, whom there are more of than I think you give me credit for, and the um, Trotskyite intelligentsia with whom I um, uh, spend my time, is that, you know, kind of over the course of the 1980s, uh, movies broke us of, of the habit of thinking that to be good, they had to be socially or uh, morally important. Um, you know, kind of the Pauline Kael years, uh, the auteur era of the 70s. Um, and by 1988, I mean, I think Die Hard, in my estimation, and, and I'd be very curious to hear Bob's response to this, Die Hard was a watershed in a, for a couple different reasons. But to me, the big one is that it was not at all morally or socially important. It had no pretense to that whatsoever. Uh, whatsoever. And in many ways, it was an unbelievably silly movie, but it was also superb. Uh, it, it had verve. It had wit. It was very, very tight, I thought. Um, people can argue over whether Bruce Willis was the strong or the weak point. The truth is, at the time, he was their 99th choice for, for that role. 
for McLean. Uh, they this is sent out uh, early versions of the script to everybody that you can think of, and they'd all turned it down. Weirdly, what they then did is overpaid Bruce Willis. They gave him five million bucks, even though he was really only a TV star at that point, to take the part. And I'm not sure whether this was the motivation, but they, to, to an unprecedented degree, they were at liberty to balance the hero and the villain in terms of screen time, charm, wit, great lines. Whereas if you had had a super A-lister playing the John McClane part, the hero, um, I don't know that Hans Gruber, the character that Alan Rickman plays, would have had so many unbelievably funny uh, scene-stealing, but you can even argue movie-stealing moments. So, um, and and, and um, uh, Rickman brought an enormous, I mean, it was his first screen role, as you point out, he brought an enormous amount of uh, intelligence to that part, because essentially the movie is a kind of, it's kind of a flip inverted meta cowboy and Indian story, whereby this super suave European villain who uh, turns out is only claiming to be a terrorist in order to, you know, escape with 600 to 700 million dollars worth of bearer bonds, turns out to be a complete cynic. He's putting on a kind of show where he's pretending to be this um, uh, international terrorist with high-minded ideals and anti-capitalist goals. Um, so he can kind of ham it up within the, in, in the confines of the of the character. But uh, uh, he's the he uh, he is the one who accuses in the clip that you played. He accuses Bruce Willis of being a kind of stupid American cowboy, seen too many movies, an orphan of a corrupt culture. Um, and so that allowed Willis to, to play this kind play up also uh, on his uh, side of the equation this kind of slightly ridiculous cartoony um, uh, cowboy character. And so we're kind of half in the realm of a naturalistic world where. You know, we're, we're uh, suspending our disbelief and watching some really fun thriller, but we're absolutely the entire time we're also in this scenery-chewing, uh, in, self-consciously inflated um, uh, cartoon. And it balances the two, in my estimation, beautifully. But so, so my, the quick answer would be it's, <laughs> it's an incredibly well-crafted movie with uh, a, a really arguably the greatest action thriller villain performance at the center of it in Alan Rickman. All right, Bob, he's giving you, I can't wait to push Metcalf on subtext a little bit, but uh, Bob, he's giving you a lot to react to, so go ahead and react. Well, I I don't have any real argument with anything he said. I I think the picture works on a whole lot of different levels. uh, I think Bruce Willis became a star as a result of it, did he not? Yes. Um, And uh, certainly Rickman is is, uh, the model for villains who have slowly but surely taken over all movies, basically. I mean, there. The, I, I think there's no question anymore that that the villain is what will make a superhero movie more or less interesting, um, rather than the superhero, because the superhero, because heroes in general have a a certain John Wayneishness to them that they have to go in a certain direction, they have to do it a certain way, and the villain gets to play it as it lays, and that's a much more interesting. I, I I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't rather play the the villain rather than the uh, the hero I, these days, um, I, and and actually, well, I I don't know. I I I think I think the notion of of the hero of, of the villain as a fascinating character it didn't originate with this. I mean, you've got Iago in in Othello, right? So there there are lots of examples before this, but. But as a practical matter, the the fact that this was a well-balanced movie is indeed what makes it so engaging and so interesting. And you aren't really sure how—I mean, on, on some level, you, you do know how it has to come out. 
but you aren't really sure how it's going to get there. And it, it does seem, uh, as you're going, it, it seems to be very much in question. So, Metcalf, this movie's made in uh, 1988, and it's a cop movie that's openly contemptuous of almost every kind of cop. You know, the local cops are idiots. The FBI people are truly evil. You know, you're happy when they're wasted by these, these you know, valueless uh, terrorist thieves. And, you know, in that sense, I think one of its cousins is 1984's Ghostbusters, which is a real rejection of all kinds of authority. You know, they share a kidney named William Atherton, who plays almost exactly the same character uh, in these in each of these movies. But I think it's harder to know. I think, I think we sort of know what Bill Murray and company was saying, what they were saying in Ghostbusters. But, you know, the degree to which Die Hard hates all police officers except uh, John McClane and his Twinkie-eating friend. I, I don't know. What do you make of that? Oh, I, I think, yeah, no, you've put your finger on something. I mean, look, it's a zeitgeist picture through and through. Um, one thing I would point your listeners to is that uh, a few months ago in the last year, Vox.com published an article about Ghostbusters as a, as a anti-authoritarian kind of startup parable in a way, like, you know, kind of everything... Everything wicked in the movie Ghostbusters is bureaucratic, sclerotic, um, uh, top-heavy, and elitist. And whereas they're this, they're basically the world's first Silicon Valley startup, kind of this merry band of, of uh, libertarians. I think that this movie, Die Hard, is all. It's a, that's a terrific piece of writing, by the way. But um, anyway, uh, this movie, Die Hard, is, is a libertarian par- parable, semi-libertarian parable too, or an anti-authoritarian parable. Um, you know, he is a cop. I guess he's he's off the force temporarily, if I recall. Um, you know, it, it, I think that that it, it's it's a sop to the Reagan era need to believe in the rugged individual, you know, uh, fighting against uh, elites and bureaucrats. Uh, and that part of it is quite crude. I, I think the other thing that this movie introduced um, that was original but maybe somewhat more pernicious than the fun villain uh, is the idea that it could be redeemed, it could be aimed at low tastes or a mass audience quite successfully while aiming itself simultaneously at a slightly more sophisticated audience by having a certain irony to it. Um, You know, there was a way to consume this and congratulate yourself for getting its little winks and its little twinkle in its eye, which I think are there and are are placed quite beautifully there. But nonetheless, there is a way in which I've never held myself accountable for thrilling along to what is basically a Reagan-era anti-authoritarian parable in which officialdom is, you know, bottomlessly corrupt, because the movie is so silly in a way, and it's so aware of its own silliness. I mean, I think there are two FBI agents named Johnson, and, and it's just a tiny little joke, but it just lets you know we're not fully in the realm of the real. Um, and to take it seriously enough to criticize it is to take yourself seriously. And having taught audiences that reflex, I, I, I think, and Bob, I'd be curious to hear him speak to this, that's not the best habit for audiences to get into. <laughs> well, I suppose that's true. I, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about something else that the, the picture does that um, that a, a few really interesting movies do, which is is that it it contrasts acting styles, and I kind of like the idea of having sort of the the uh, I don't know I want to I want to call him a feat, and he isn't really, but but the the British uh, thespian approach to acting versus the 
John Wayne is a good example, a, a Marlon Brando American ma- mm-hmm. manner of acting, and, and opposing those two things. There are other other films that I can think of that, that do that. One of them is Marathon Man, where you have Olivier versus uh, Dustin Hoffman, and the two of them simply come at the roles in different from different places and in different ways. And there's a tension in the way they interact, um, even when they're not on screen together. And in this movie, the two main characters are never on screen together, right? Um, I the uh, the other one that uh, plays off of that, and I think for the same reasons, and I think is inspired some way in some ways by Die Hard, is the Twilight movies. Um, the uh, the the Twilight, you know, you have you have uh, 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 glittery Edward the vampire versus Brando wannabe Jacob the the uh, uh, the wolf boy. And there again, the the tension in their scenes has everything to do with the fact that they're coming at the whole notion of acting a scene from different planets. Okay, and I'm gonna, it, I actually am going to have to stop you guys just because we're, in fact, out oh. of time, tragically oh, no. out of time. Yes, I know there's so much more to talk about. I really wanted to talk about the fact that this is also the awakening of an American angst about globalism. You know, this is a Japanese-owned building, and the terrorists are, you know, they're European, and Hans is some kind of lapsed Boer or something. Uh, But we don't have time to talk about that. We have time to thank Stephen Metcalf uh, from Slate, where he's critic at large and host of the Culture Gap Fest, and Bob Mondello, who is Bob Mondello. If you love Mondello (laughs) and you love a show that would talk about the Fast and the Furious and Die Hard on Public Radio. Please support us when the fundraising people come on, which they are going to do right this very second. I bet when John McClane retires, it'll be called Die Hard with a Pension. But of course not in Connecticut.